Hey, um, I want to give you a quick reminder for those of you who are here and those who aren't here. <clears throat> the reason, if you're not here because um, you've got this thing in the back of your mind, that's awesome, Jeff. <laughs> All your kids as you're walking back going down, good job, Dad. That was, that was just fantastic, guys. Y'all, are, y'all rock. That was a great, I wish you could have seen that. I mean, they were all just like, yeah, Dad. That was, that was just beautiful. I had to tell you guys. Okay, so on that note, if you're one of those people who's out there and you're like, I would love to come be one of those 250 people in the live studio audience, but I've got little kids, and they're kind of noisy, and, and they might, like, move around, like, don't, don't let that stop you. I, I get that that may distract someone in the room, and I appreciate your gentleness on that. Um, one, it's not going to distract me. I mean, we had a young man come join us on stage last week, and that, that doesn't even, doesn't phase me a bit. And so um, I, I, um, I just, I want you to know, and I know for some of you, like you've been coming for a while, you've been signing up week after week, and for some of you, this may be your first Sunday back, and we're proud to have everybody who's here and if, if, that's, if that's the only thing, there may be plenty of other reasons we get, absolutely get that. If that's the only thing that's keeping you from coming, I would, I would encourage you, go ahead and pick a Sunday and come on up. It's, I think it'll be okay. Um, and uh, just you, so you'll know, I also want to make sure you know, like, yes, we've had all types of changes with summer programming and activities. You all have too. All, everything in your life has been like that. Um, we do have... Um, at last minute, our children's camp got shifted. Um, student camp is now going to be on property, and children's camp maybe too at the same time. And so we're we're working on all that kind of stuff. We're making those quick as quick as adaptations as we can. But if you've got a student age kid, if you've got a, a child that age, um, make sure and try to sign them up if you can. I'm just telling you, like you, I hate to see when a student misses student camp. Whatever form it takes, it's going to be memories in the future. And so I hate when a student misses student camp because it's like it puts them just a tiny bit out of sync with the other students. That's okay. Everybody will survive that, but it just has this weird effect. And so I just want to encourage you, if you haven't signed your kids up for um, our version of student camp this year, um, do so. Get online and and sign your kids up for that. Um, It's it's really inexpensive this year, uh, among other things, right? So if that's ever stopped you, don't let that stop you. Um, So... We want to really encourage that and, and all that kind of stuff as we're moving forward. Just so you know, the staff, we are, we're kind of like little ducks. I, I know that when we're here on Sunday morning, it looks like we're all calm and placid and tranquil and all that kind of stuff. But during the week, we're, I mean, under the water, you'd see us doing like this the whole time as we're trying to figure out how do we minister the best we can under these less than great conditions. Um, and so I wanted you to know we are moving towards, constantly strategizing and moving towards um, re- reclaiming a sense of normality and doing ministry the way we would prefer to do it. And, and as the leadership boards talk about, like, and this is as good a time as any to start trying to make adjustments and figure out what we want to do. If there's something different we want to do, now seems like the time to try to change something. And so we're always doing that anyway, but we want to do that. I want you to know, and for you guys who are online to hear, um, we're, we're working towards trying to figure out how we do children's ministry here. And the way we do it here is very unique and different. And so it's it's, it's a challenge, <coughs> but our goal is to, before long, at least have children's ministry opportunities for kinder and below. Um, we think that's going to take about 50 people a week, uh, 50 of us a week. And so if you're willing to be one of those who would say, you know what, as we're transitioning into that, um, it probably would mean going to two services, it would mean registering, all that kind of stuff. 
But what we need to know first is, if you're one of those people who would say, I'm willing to be one of those 50 people, um, please contact um, Rebecca um, and let her know, or Jared, and let them know <coughs> that we are, that you're someone who would say, I would like to be a part of that transition. It may be a role you've never had, or a different role, or whatever at first, as we're transitioning. Get online, send an email to Jared or Rebecca, and say, I would, I'd like to be among those first 50. Because we need to know, because it's going to be a, it's going to be an interesting transition if we make that happen. All right, good, because we're trying to figure this stuff out. And as you know, one, one speech, one email, one news report, and everything gets changed again. But that's what we've got to work, move towards what we can work for. Um, okay, so last week when I referenced how it's a pet peeve of mine when people uh, cite, don't refuse, they fail to cite well people. And then at the end of the sermon, I had a quote, and I couldn't remember who said it. That's just God humbling me. Okay, that's just so you'll know. Um, but I want to make sure you know who that quote was and what the exact quote says. Um, Jean Fleming, who's a Christian author, um, she has this quote. To add Christ to our already busy life is to complicate living. To allow Christ to absorb all the elements of our life is to simplify it. When a man and I read that, that spoke to me. This is the difference between adding Christianity to your life and letting Christ live out, living out Christ as the Lord of your life. Next week, starting next week, we're going to be in chapter 6 which is the whole reason you wanted me to teach on Daniel. I know, you're all like, Daniel in the lion's den. Everybody's excited, and it's going to be a ton of fun. But <clears throat> to know, one of the main messages I think that we as Christians need to hear in Daniel 6 is the integrated Christian life, is a life that is saturated with the relationship with Almighty God, that everything else falls in submission under that, that we have rights to nothing as Christians we serve an almighty God and King who is also our brother and friend, which is a huge blessing to us, but that, that's, that is a totally different worldview than we're used to, and that's where I want us to be prepared to have that conversation. Okay, so here we are, Daniel somewhere in the range of 70 to 90 years old, probably closer to the 90, has been called before the prince who is referred to as a king of Babylon, whose father has been defeated by the Persians whose enemies surround him. Daniel is called into the room, and here's what Daniel finds. This young man, we don't know how young, but youngish man, has thrown a massive party numbering in the thousands. He thought it would add something to the party to bring the gold and silver cups and chalices that had been taken from the temple in Jerusalem many, many years ago and hand those out like they were red solo cups for the crowd. Okay. Incidentally, later when Cyrus, the king of Persia, sends the Jewish people back to their homeland, he will send them back with these very same items to put back in their temple. At the time, here's how the treasurer, Cyrus's treasurer, will report them this way, from Ezra chapter 1, verse 9. This was the inventory. 30 gold dishes. 1,000 silver dishes, 29 silver pans, 30 gold bowls, 410 matching silver bowls, and 1,000 other articles. <clears throat> Generally, these would have been handled not only, by the Jew, not only by Jews only, not only by men only, but by priests only. 
the message of this type of, of limitation isn't about patriarchy because the vast majority of men would not have been allowed to handle them. It wasn't about, ho- it wasn't about <coughs> simple patriarchy. It's about holiness, set-apartness, something used for something special and not for something else. This is what is offensive to God about this moment. It's what would have been offensive to Daniel about this moment, walking in and seeing this isn't just a matter of, oh my gosh, they're abusing God's silver and gold. No, this isn't about it being silver and gold. This isn't just, it's not, it's because it's expensive. No, it's not just, you know, you, you touch daddy's tools. No, that's, I mean, that's, that can be bad, right? You don't mess with dad's tools. But it's not something as simple as that. This is about something that is holy. <clears throat> when, I, when I talk to young men uh, who want to take my daughter out, our daughters out on a date, it's only been one so far, but um, not many people are asking him out on dates yet. She's seven. But the, um, uh, but the idea that one of the conversations I have with them is I talk about, and it sounds scary and it's not meant to, it just happens to be that the things that I prize in my home happen to be weapons. And that's, I, I didn't even realize until I told somebody one time and they were like, that's scary. I was like, I, oh, sorry, I didn't. So my grandfather, my dad's father left me his 30-06 that he hunted with. Um, my grandfather on the other side, my mom's grandfather, he had a Japanese sword that he brought back from World War II, and it hangs uh, in our house. So I tell these young men about these two things, and I'm like, just so you'll know, if you showed up today and said, hey, can I borrow your grandfather's gun, I would say no. If you said, hey, can I borrow your grandfather's sword, I would go, no. No, nice talking to you, no. Instead, you've asked to take responsibility for something, for someone who I would happily burn the gun and the sword to keep safe. Like you want to spend time with my daughter who is prized way beyond anything, in fact, everything else in the house other than potentially people. Not even close second, right? I mean, that's, that's not how that works. Because she, to me, is sacred. The sword is special. The gun is special. But they're not sacred. She is sacred to me. I Actually, as I really wrestled through what is sacred in our lives... And there just isn't, we, this is something we lack. I don't know how to, I'm now going to have to wrestle through this. Because I realized, like I talked about how I like poker, because poker has certain rules. And there's, there's right ways and wrong ways. There's an etiquette and things like that. Like, I like that about it. It's a cool thing to teach that. It's like having a fine meal and being taught through. Like a friend of mine named Jesse taught me how to, about a fine meal. You put the fork here and you put the, it's just neat. There's an etiquette. There's a rules. There's a guideline. There's a way of doing things. And I like that sometimes. But when I started asking myself what is sacred, I keep coming back to it. I think partially it's just as being an evangelical Christian who interprets the Bible the way I do. It is the end, in the end, it is only the things that are eternal that are sacred. God, His Word, and people. And, and yet, there's other things I want to engage with that. So that, anyway, conversation I'll be having, I'm sure, with John Keeling and others sitting on the back porch at some point. Like, I would love to really talk through this. What is, what is sacred? Something used... The idea of sacred means set apart, something that is used for some specific purpose, and under these conditions, a holy purpose, a religious purpose, a God-oriented purpose. Things that are holy treasure should never be treated as common. This is what has offended God in this moment, is that something that is holy treasure is being treated as something common, much less trash. 
It's, it's the mistake the church made at some point, and I don't know exactly when, when, when the world, the fight, between the, the, the fight about sex between the church and the world has been, the world saying sex is common and the church saying sex is trash. Both are wrong. Sex is treasure and is meant to be treated that way. That was a mistake for us to try to fight at the other end. We should have stood solidly in the middle and said, no, it is sacred. We've done it well in some areas. Think about the song we all grew up singing, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in His sight. That's 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 a comment on sacredness, on holiness. Male, female, born, unborn, sinner, saint, lost, found, Muslim, Jew, Christian, atheist, Satanist. When we say life is sacred, what we're saying is life is something set apart and holy and meant to be protected. How? That status of being created in the holy image of a holy God means we are all His treasure. And this is a status worthy of dignity. We see this, therefore we treat people with dignity. We may not be treated with dignity, that's not our problem. We are the treasure hunters. We get to see it. We're the experts on the Antiques Roadshow. We understand treasure when we see it, and we know life is sacred, all of it. That is the world, and God so loved the world that gave His Son only a worldview that understands the reality of an all-benevolent God in my opinion, has any rational foundation to love everyone else. Only one that believes in a benevolent God. We can rejoice and mourn together as the image bearers of the Almighty God. Rest just in a moment. Just take a second and take a deep breath and rest in the fact that you're created in the image of Almighty God and you bear His image. And there's nothing you can do to make that go away. That is a foundation of human identity, of what it means to be us. And that everyone else is too. The politicians we hate, they are image bearers of God. Unmerited identity is sweet. It's also painful at times. They're not for that. Skin color is for knowing, not hating. Women and men are for loving, not dominating. Other humans are for dignifying, not dismissing. Babies are for holding, not killing. Wombs are for safety, not destruction. That's what they're for. It's why we take a stance about the sanctity, sacredness of life. It is not merely, not merely about one topic politically. It is a transcendent concept. It's why when I get the opportunity to counsel with women who have fa- and men who have faced abortion, for example, this is part of that, is getting to be healed in the midst of that and discovering that your life is still sacred even in the midst of a decision looking back that brings pain. That's part of this. It's a, it's, it can be an amazing, beautiful thing. Now, here's what's wild. God's image is for honoring not for anything else. But for us as Christians, it gets even better. That's for the whole world, by the way. That's how we are meant to see the whole world. We see human life as sacred. We see human beings as sacred, bearing God's image, His treasure. And we get, we're, as Christians, we should be able to love in a way no one else gets to. 
because of that, or at least only other Christians and Jews get to. Like that's because we understand it means to be born in the image, created in the image of God. Now, it gets even better for us as Christians because we don't just bear God's image, we also bear His name. We aren't orphans. We're adopted children. Not merely bear His image, but His name. Listen to how Peter, Peter, think about who Peter is. Think about where Peter comes from. Think about the mistakes that Peter has made. Here's how Peter understood this later in life. In 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves are like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. When you're a Jew, you don't talk about things being like the temple lightly. And he is saying that we are like the stones of the real temple. And not just the stones of the temple, but a holy priesthood. You don't talk about that lightly either if you're a Jew. He's speaking to everybody, all the, all the believers as being like a holy priesthood. <coughs> Able to offer sacrifices. <clears throat> Unacceptable language. This is blasphemous if it's not true. And yet Peter is all over this. We love the approval of humans, we appreciate acceptance and, we, and love from others, but we often receive rejection from humans, just like our Savior did. Ignored, persecuted, but so was Christ, and killed, He was too. Rejected, maybe like others, even other Christians, maybe by others, even other Christians, even other churchgoers, sometimes we are rejected, sometimes we are persecuted, sometimes we are ignored. But just like Christ was chosen and precious, so we are chosen as living stones to be a temple, a church, a holy priesthood. That word holy, again, same thing, sacred, set apart, sanctified. There are moments we can make, there are, there are offerings that we can make that are acceptable to God. Is it because of our merit? Church? No. That's what it says. Offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God because of our merit. No. Because we're church members. Uh-uh. Because we're so awesome, forget about it. You're going to make me laugh. This is a acceptable through Jesus Christ. That is what turns our sacrifices holy is because they're in the name of Jesus Christ. Listen, Peter has to say it again. Just know that he, He's so pumped about this. He has to say it again. Imagine how shocking this was for Peter. We're going to look at that in a second. 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. When I think common and holy, I always consider a moment that must have been burned into Peter's soul and heart and mind until the day he hung on a cross. Acts chapter 10. Jesus, Jesus appears to him in a vision, lays down all this food, and including clean and unclean animals, and says, take and eat. And Peter says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. He's such a good Jew, Right? Which is shocking, by the way. Do you, I'm always, every time I read something like that, I'm like, never? Anyway, I couldn't have pulled it off. Like, I don't, anyway, I mean, bacon. Anyway, so, and the voice came to him again a second time and said, this was a trap. Jesus tricked Peter into saying this. He tricked Peter into saying this. Hey, take it, eat this. No, Lord. He, Peter thinks he's being tested, Right? Take and eat. Peter's like, no, no, I would never do that. Gotcha! Don't you dare call common 
what I have made clean. Don't you dare. We do that. We do it with ourselves. We do it with each other. Where this applies now has to do with human relationships probably more than anything else. How dare you call something common that I have called clean? Other believers, they've confessed their sins and He has been faithful and just to forgive them and cleanse them of all unrighteousness. Don't you dare call. We better not dare call unclean what God has called clean. That's not how that works, especially in ourselves. That's why we pretend and prop up. We try to make ourselves look clean by our own merit. No, no, I've got this all together. No, no, I've fixed all this. No, no, I don't have this problem. No, no, I... And we try to fool other people to thinking we're clean by our merit. And only, only fools are fooled by that. Again, have you met you? Everybody else is just jacked up as you are. They, just, they hide it as well as you do, probably, or worse. So here we have Peter saying this, Jesus saying to him, don't call clean, don't call it common if I've called it clean. And this happened, by the way, you think this is a pattern for Peter? How many times does this exact little thing play out for poor Peter? Would you guess? Three times. Peter's like, okay, yeah, I, I get it, three times. We've done the three-time things many times. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. Okay, you're going, um, Daniel? This, I want you to understand what it means to be a Christian who sees something sacred being used for something common. That should, it, should, it triggers so much. Most of the, think about this. Most of the issues that we call political today, many of the issues that are our greatest shame in our culture today come down to the fact that we have, what Tony Campolo years ago said, we have switched the price tags. We are calling things clean that are unclean. We're calling things common that are clean. This is the source of so much of our issues. If we would correctly identify and engage rightly with what God has called sacred, we wouldn't be dealing with racism issues. We wouldn't be dealing with abortion issues. We probably wouldn't even be dealing with the national debt. That's a whole other conversation. We certainly wouldn't be neglecting veterans. We have a hard time. Those, uh, by the way, those are what I consider the four great barbaric things about our day. This, this is... This is an embarrassment, and as the church, we are in this awesome position to step up on these issues and go, sacred, sacred, holy, sacred. We get this. Daniel walks into this, and he sees this beautiful, horrific picture of sacred as common. And God is not okay with it. Verse 22 of Daniel chapter 5, and you, his son, he's in that little speech he's doing in that little mini sermon on pride. Your grandfather, your father, Nebuchadnezzar, remember that? He got slapped down. He got to spend seven periods of time living like a beast. He was in control of men's life, but now he can't control the urge to eat grass. And here we have this, and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. Does that feel human? Anybody have alcoholic family members? And then you find yourself drinking? You, you knew better. What were you thinking? 
who have, who have people have this, you have people in your family, you look back and you look at the bad money decisions, the anger problems, the, the addictions, the whatever in our past, and when then we find ourselves flirting with the same things, like, really? Really? Yeah, we're, sometimes we're the bad guy in the Bible. Remember, that's okay. Listen to what he says in verse 23, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron, of wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose ways are all, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. You switch out, switch out idols and put in something else, but that's us. Now we know what Bell's motives were, or at least what he accomplished. He has lifted himself up against the Lord of heaven. Was, was Belshazzar trying to reestablish the worship of the entire pantheon? You learned about um, uh, last week or the week before his father's uh, Nabonidus' reform towards the moon god only. Maybe that's what he's doing here. So what does it matter if he offends sin, the moon god? Nothing. Because he's an idol made out of wood. He can't see or hear or even know things. It's just an idol. They're a mockery. What does it matter if he offends all these gods? Nothing. They're a mockery. Periodically, I find myself in that situation that to, to be in, in, in a counseling session with someone who is <clears throat> you know, seeing demons or, or hearing voices or, or whatever, and sometimes I will challenge them like, okay, I'm going to write a word down. Tell the demons to come tell you what's on my piece of paper here. Ready? Go. There's a time when there's a mockery side of that. They are powerful, they're meaningful. We've talked about even that, though. In the name of Jesus Christ, we engage with them. But what does it matter if you mock the, these gods? They're not alive to be offended. They're just wood or silver. However, this guy made a mistake. Belshazzar made a mistake. He accidentally mocked the God who is real. That's a problem. These spiritual beings that are out there, some, again, some are just idols. They're just wood some are real spiritual beings, and I imagine many of the pantheons of ba- pantheon of Babylon were. But in the end, the only God you have to be truly afraid of offending is Almighty God. What He does is mock God, and many of you automatically, you know what verse is coming next. Galatians 6 says this, Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also reap. So we arrive finally at the words on the wall. Sorry to make you wait all this time. Verse 24, Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed. And no one knows exactly how to pronounce this, by the way, so I'm just going to pronounce it the way we, want, we do in East Texas. Mean, mean, tekel and parsen. How strange. We finally get to see the words and the first thought that maybe comes to our mind, if you, especially if you're reading commentaries and stuff like that, is like, well, that's strange. That's Aramaic. Why would a bunch of people who speak Aramaic not have been able to tell you what those words were? Everybody in the room should have known this, this language. It shouldn't be impossible for a bunch of Babylonians to read. Now, so one is we picture, because we got it in the Bible, we saw it on our flannel grass when we were growing up, and we've, we've all seen you know, veggie tales, and we picture these, these three real pretty words put out on the page, but actually probably recognize um, the Aramaic was typically printed without vowels. 
And sometimes there wasn't even spaces in there, so it may have looked like, do we have that slide? That this is what was on the wall. If we put, not this, that's English. So this, but Aramaic, okay? But if you walked into, if, if you saw an invisible hand and it wrote this on the wall, <laughs> it's not like you would go like, oh. I told the guys, when we looked at this, I told the guys, I was like, I, I would have been like, what, what would I have said? You all know it. Can I buy a vowel? Right? <laughs> like, what is, what, uh, E, where does E go? Okay, so even if they could have read it, it probably would have made almost no sense to them anyway. Because what we're going to learn is that it really comes out to mean this. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. So even if they could have, if you walked in and the, the invisible hand wrote on the, or the visible hand wrote on the wall and you saw it and what you saw was numbered, numbered, weighed, divided, you would still go, what? I mean... And it, uh, literally a disembodied hand just wrote on my wall four random words, and I have no idea. Like, that would just be just as scary. So even if they did know what it was, they need an interpretation. Another way that you might immediately interpret it, by the way, mean probably comes from what we get the word mina or mina, which is a count of gold. Tekel is probably from shekel, which is also the concept of weighing, which is one-sixtieth of a mina. And then perez, which is half a mina, so it might have even be to help you wrap your brain around it, like looking at the wall, and even if you did understand it, it says dollar, dollar, penny, 50 cent piece. And you would go, what? There's a confusion that they have, obviously. Counted, counted, weighed, divided isn't clear, but it's totally clear. This is one of those really cool moments that you can imagine Daniel walking in, looking around and seeing the detritus from this giant party, and the, the, the sacred items from the temple, thousands of them probably scattered throughout the room. And he sees the wall, and he instantly knows what that message is. So he stops, and before giving the interpretation of the message, he tells the whole, this whole little mini-sermon to Belshazzar. And now he's finally going to tell him. Verse 26, Illuminated by the eyes of God, the depth of their word and their judgment stretch out before this old man. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mean. God has numbered the days of your kingdom, and He has brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now, why the first word twice? Any carpenters in the room? Anybody? Why is the word measured there twice? Because you measured twice, right? That's a, that's, it probably is really meant to bring emphasis to it. It's repeated. This is done. There's no discussion. It's kind of like um, God has numbered your days and has brought it to an end. Wait, but, but God has numbered your days and has brought it to an end. Now, there's not room for discussion. Someone asked me this week, why doesn't Belshazzar get a chance to learn from this the way Nebuchadnezzar did? Right? Nebuchadnezzar gets slapped down, but he, he just spends a period of time, and then he finally gets to come out of it. Understand, <clears throat> we have a hard time with this because we're humans and not God, but understand, God is telling you right here, He did give Belshazzar a chance. He weighed him. He measured him. He judged him. God already knew that it wasn't going to happen. God already understood that. Now, any of us might have known it, 
he didn't learn anything from Nebuchadnezzar's situation, why would we assume he would learn something if he was put in the exact same situation? That's not necessarily going to be the case, right? He is directly affronted, Almighty God, after knowing Nebuchadnezzar's situation. This doesn't sound like somebody who's very teachable, does it? Who's open to this kind of stuff. But keep in mind, this idea of God weighing, there's something to that that's pretty potent. There's a powerful idea. So we picture scales, right? Because we're all in weight loss contests. So we picture scales that you stand up on, you go, ooh, not good, right? I guess that's what I always say. So instead, we should be picturing a scales. And this scales is perfect. Um, when I bought it, it turned out to be perfect because you can see how perfectly balanced it is, right? Um, that would be a big no. This is not a good scale. But the idea would be that God says, okay, I've put my requirements on one side, and then I put your character on the other side, and it didn't move. You've been weighed, and there's not enough on your side to pull up what's, re what's required. I checked you. I've tested you. I've searched your heart. And what's happening is, it's not moving. You don't have enough going on to, step, to pull this up off the ground. This is how they tested. This is what they, so they would, put a, they would have a standard weight that was not supposed to ever be changed. We get lots of commands in the Bible about not changing, about, about unjust measurements. That you would put that in there, and then you would put the other in, and they should balance if they're exactly the same, what they should be. You have an ounce piece, you put an ounce of silver, they should be the same. And God is saying, I have measured you, Belshazzar. I have weighed you against what I require, and you did not measure up. You weren't there. Not the correct weight. And then, so you have that. Then you have the counted. That's the, the fun idea of counted. And I have weighed you and counted you, and you weren't where you were supposed to be, so now I am counting down to the end. Is there anything a little bit more scary and exciting in the English language in modern-day America than counting down? It's done in so many different movies, right? I'm going to count to three. But the only thing more scary is counting backwards, right? I'm going to count down from three, two. That's the old, um, uh, the guy goes into the doctor and the doctor says, well, I got bad news. You, you're you're going to die. And the guy's like, really? How long do I have? And the doctor goes, three. Well, three what? Two, one. Anyway, so um, weighed and found wanting. He's not the correct weight. So those are the scales. Perez here has all types of different things. It's the countdown. I read <coughs> on a website, and I know nothing about this website. It was called the Countdown to Armageddon, and they had a really good little research here. So I'm going to kind of read to you a, a kind of an edited version from this. Here's where we were. Perez broke means broken or divided. And Peros means Persian. And so both of those, the, the, the P-R-S at the end are both. And Daniel explains that, that it's both, Perez and Paraz. And so here, the Persians and the Medes were now in complete confederation. Cyrus was the king of the Persians. He faced three great armies, Croesus of Lydia, Nabonidus of Babylon, and Amasis of Egypt. And these three great kings were going to unite against him. But Cyrus struck first. He moved north and attacked Lydia. He conquered them. 
Cyrus next moved south to meet Nabonidus, who we talked about. That's Belshazzar's father, who with his Babylonian armies were moving north to attack him. But in June of 539 B.C., the Persians thoroughly routed the Babylonians. And there's different accounts. Nabonidus has either fled or like almost alone or was captured. Herodotus came around about 100 years after Nebuchadnezzar was around. Hereupon the Persians, listen to this, the Persians who had been left for the purpose at Babylon, so these are the enemies. Here's what the Persians did, according to Herodotus. They went by the riverside, so that the city of Babylon had a big old huge river that ran through it. It was one of its great strengths. You could never starve them out because they always had water and fish. And, uh, so they, he went upstream of the river, and they dug a channel in the river, had all these men, and they dug a channel, this giant river, and ran it into a marsh area. <clears throat> and as the water began to, in, in, like you can imagine, they would have dammed it up, dug this channel, and then that evening they tore that dam out, and all of a sudden, all the water, our huge percentage of the water began to move over, away from the river going into the city. And as it did, the river in the city going under the wall began to go down. So it used to be you couldn't get through because you'd have, had to, you'd have drowned trying to get in under the walls. But now the, it came down, 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 down. And it says, according to Herodotus, which by now had sunk so as to reach about midway up a man's thigh. That's pretty specific history right there, by the way. And thus they got into the town. Had the Babylonians been appraised of what Cyrus was about, or had they noticed their danger, they would never have allowed the Persians to enter the city but would have destroyed them utterly, for they would have made fast all the street gates and given access that gave access to the river and mounted upon the walls along both sides of the streams would have caught the enemy in a trap as they came in the river. But as it was, the Persians came upon them by surprise and took the city. Owing to the vast size of the city, the inhabitants of the central parts, long after the outer parts of the town were taken, still knew nothing about what was going on. The city was taken essentially without the shedding of blood. No major battle at all. The greatest defensive city in the world, and it was taken with almost no battle at all. How does this happen? How do you possibly catch a city so off guard? Here's what Herodotus says. They didn't know because of what had chanced, but they were engaged in a festival. They were at a giant party. They continued dancing and reveling until they learned too late about the capture. Such were the circumstances of the first taking of Babylon. Does that fit with the account in Daniel? Perfectly. Belshazzar was throwing a giant party with thousands of people. The whole city was in revelry. Meanwhile, so it creates this dramatic picture for me, but I don't know about you, I've watched way too many movies like this, but it creates this dramatic picture of me that I imagine Daniel standing there before Belshazzar telling him all of this, and at the exact same time he's telling them this, Persians are sneaking out from the river into the city at the same time that he's talking about this. It's going on. They took the city without a fight. Total surprise. And probably, by the way, many people think probably they had lots of help from within, too. There were lots of Babylonians not pleased with Belshazzar's leadership. So, then Belshazzar, verse 29 then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. We talked about this in some detail on the podcast, if you guys want to look that up and listen to it. It's just arrogant denial, like, yeah, sure, that's going to happen to me tonight. 
Was he saving face before his lords? Was this just a narcissistic lack of care for Daniel's boundaries? Like, I don't want your stuff. He's like, I'm giving it to you anyway. I'm always imagining Darius the Mede finding a pile of purple cloth and gold in the middle of the floor when he finally took this building. Daniel wasn't interested in it. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Let me take a few minutes and try to get as much as I can about this Darius the Mede character. Um, This is something fun. According to many secular historians, and as is accurately recorded in Wikipedia about this, he is considered, and I quote, a literary fiction. You'd think people would learn. Belshazzar was also a literary fiction. And then they discovered, no, he's not. Um, I posted on my Facebook page a, a, a scholarly article about who Darius the Mede probably was. Um, We know it's not Cyrus the Persian being called Darius the Mede. That makes no sense. And in Daniel chapter 6, verse 28, we're going to run into, so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So clearly this isn't Cyrus the Persian. It's a man probably, I'm convinced it's a man named Gobrias. You can show that. We've got a picture of Gobrias. I'm pretty much convinced as who it was. He was never officially a king. Um, and but, but that doesn't mean he didn't have the position or power or even title of king to certain people. A powerful regent, a relative to Cyrus the Great. And we know that Gobrias did rule Babylon in this exact time that the book of Daniel would indicate. It's also kind of a nice touch that Gobrias was 62 years old at this time, which is how old the book of Daniel says Darius the Mede was. Um, Some think even the word Darius is not a name but a title. Darius means one who maintains the good. And so that would easily be a title you would give a man later, especially if he was a good leader. The Jewish historian Josephus, several hundred years later, recorded the quote, Darius the Mede, who along with his relative Cyrus, the king of Persia, brought an end to the Babylonian empire. And Darius was the son of Astyages. Um, who is another historical character we have good reference to. Um, And by the way, who is probably Gobrias. So, here we have this historical figure, a guy named Gobrias, a man who's been a military leader. He's been a general. I told Ginger this morning um, before coming in, Daniel chapter 6 has always confused me in a few ways that we're going to talk about. It's confused me that a lifelong politician like a king would be caught by the obvious ruse of these scholars. <clears throat> and then would have to, would be so unclear about even how the law works that they would feel the need to, come to teach him about it three or four separate times. And he continues to fight against it. And then when he realizes that he's been taken in and embarrassed, his response is to have all of those who pulled the wool over his eyes, them, their families, and their children slaughtered. That's a little over the top. But if you're a man like Gobrias and you're a military leader, he has overseen the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people, probably. He was involved, if not the main leader, in the taking of many cities that were probably put to the sword and the torch. And so you can imagine all of a sudden the idea of this man Gobrias, the king of Babylon, meaning the city itself, the lord of the city, um, they have a big, they have a big um, festival in Babylon every year, and it's very important that the person who leads that festival has the title king. 
And so very likely they just gave that title to whoever ruled the city at the time, like Belshazzar and maybe like Gobrias. So here you have this man. He's an old military man. He's been fighting and killing since he was a child. And now he's put in charge of a city and these slimy, weaselly uh, advisors pull a fast one on him. It turns out to be a huge mistake. All of a sudden, chapter 6 begins to make a lot more sense to me. Some of these little things. We'll talk about that over the next few weeks. You know it's going to take a few weeks to get to the lion's den, right? So, I'm excited though. That is starting next week. Daniel and the lion's den. We're going to have a ton of fun with it. Um, isn't God's Word good? This is just good, exciting stuff. So, I want to pray over us. My prayer for us this week, in particular, is this idea of the sacred and the common. That we can look around at the people in our lives and recognize the sanctity of being created in the image of God. That we can understand we have concepts like this that transcend mere political parties, that transcend mere worldly solutions to these issues, that fundamentally we would be able to say, but this person is created in the image of God. And I need to treat them with the dignity that God's own image requires. And not only that for others, and for some of us who are probably a little more proud, we need to be reminded to treat other people that way. But for some who are a little more downtrodden internally, we need to remember that that is also true about us. And that sets us free to live and love well, to grow and learn humbly. So I want to pray this over us today. And then when we're done, if you've already been through the welcome home process, if you're someone who would like to join, that's great. If you're a guest with us and you've never done this, maybe you, we, we realize we've had quite a few guests during this time, we do have a welcome desk at the back. It would mean a lot to us if you would go and let them know you were here today so that we could let you know how proud we are that you were. So I want to pray. and then uh, So stand, if you will, and I'll pray. And however the Lord engages your heart in this, I pray you'll be listening. All of us will. Father, we're so grateful for the goodness of who you are. Thank you as we see a community like Tyler seeking to figure out how to come together and how to be gentle with each other with really tough decisions like the renaming of schools. God, I thank you that we see leaders doing their best to try to treat other people around them as created in your image. God, that's true of those historical figures, and I pray that we remember and learn from them. And Lord, at the same time that we love our brothers and sisters well through this, teach us to be gentle and humble in the way we engage with all of it. Lord, I, I thank you and I do not covet the position of people who have had to make decisions like that this week. I pray for them. Father, I pray for us as we're seeking to figure out what it means day in and day out to learn to live um, in our lives, in our marriages, in our friendships, in our, with kids, our kids and other people's kids, to learn to do that understanding that they are created in your image. And beyond that, Lord, for brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, that we are not only created in your image, but we now bear your name. We're now your ambassadors and your representatives, and I pray that the way we treat those nearest to us would show, bring glory to your name. And we're all terrible at this, Father, but I pray you would humble our hearts to learn to live this out in a new way. I don't know what else your spirit is going to speak to each of our hearts, but I pray that your spirit now would speak and that we would listen. That his message to us would be illuminated like the writing on the wall was illuminated through the power of your spirit to Daniel. Write on the walls of our heart, Lord, 
what you have for us. Help us take it seriously in your son's name. Amen. All righty, John.